everybody welcome back to another episode of the nevin and fred podcast um, i'm one of your hosts uh, nevin adams chief content officer of the american retirement association and my partner in podcasting prognostication there is uh, another than mr fred reesh hello fred Hey, Nevin. Good to be with you. And as Nevin said, I'm Fred Reich. I'm a partner in the law firm of Fagri Drinker. I specialize in all things retirement, annuities, IRAs, retirement plans, and as Nevin suggested, prognosticating. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, well, you know, it may be summertime and people may be out on the beach and things that maybe they're out on their beach listening to this podcast as we speak. Um, so we hope everybody is having a, is a good summer so far. Um, we've certainly had a lot of things continue to go on here, things that uh, you'll want to keep an eye on. Um, in fact, our very last podcast, we talked about uh, some upcoming changes relating to uh, specifically rollover advice and the July 1st date for uh, people who make rollover advice to be required to, under the provisions of, I'm going to say it right, Fred, PTE <laughs> 2002. There you um, go, like a, like uh, a pro, Nevin. Like a pro. <laughs> well, you've trained, you've trained me well. Um, that under the, the provisions of that uh, prohibited transaction exemption from the Labor Department, uh, in order to make a rollover recommendation was going to qualify as advice, you needed to provide to the individual a written explanation of why that rollover was, in fact, in their best interest, um, which arguably is something people should have been having in mind all along, but arguably having a requirement to put it in writing um, makes it a little different, uh, certainly makes it something to be taken, I would argue, a little more seriously, perhaps, uh, because um, things in writing tend to be what, what lawyers like to refer to as smoking guns if you don't do it right. Isn't that right, Fred? Oh, it is. And I think, you know, most people, when they approach an issue like this PTE or other compliance issues, they, they see it as understanding the rules and then putting processes and documentation in place to satisfy the rules. Um, but they don't tend to think the way that lawyers do a year or two or three from now, uh, claimants' attorneys, plaintiffs' attorneys, the Department of Labor, the SEC, FINRA, can come in and, and, and file claims or examine, and they will ask for the, the specific reasons in writing that were given to the investor about why a rollover was in their best interest. So as a lawyer, I tend to think, you know, what's going what's gonna to look right? And I think one of the real issues is that that people haven't paid enough attention to is not only do you have to put down the specific reasons and the regulators can look at it a couple of years later or the litigators, uh, but also they're going to see how that rollover money was invested. So was the money invested consistently with the specific reasons? If not, why not? In other words, people are going to have to defend those specific reasons so they better do it right, it better be tied into the investor profile, and it better be reflected in the investments and services provided thereafter. That's a good point. And, you know, again, you know, people are going to be looking at this, as you said, Fred, not, not right at the moment, but they're going to be looking at it with a couple of years' time, perhaps a little bit of hindsight. 
Um, and so, yes, I, you know, as we said last time, um, that's really important. Now, the other thing that, um, and I'll say we said last time, although arguably, Fred, this is really you, um, was this notion that a concern that a lot of people really hadn't focused on this July 1st date and maybe weren't, weren't ready for this in the way that they might have. They might have been lulled into, you know, a false sense of, I don't know, security or whatever, just with uh, the passage of time and, and the fact that this, this had been kind of stretched out um, and things like that. But, but again, overall, just sort of a general concern, um, at least before our podcast, that uh, people weren't perhaps all the way ready for this and maybe have let the July 1st date come and go and, and not done what they should do. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that this time. Um, you've written a blog post about this, which we'll have up as a part of our resources to go with the guide. But but to talk a little bit about what do you do if you didn't do what you were supposed to do? How's that? <laughs> sure. That's a good one. Great intro. Uh, the, the First off, Nevin, let me say, just to give you three examples of what I'm seeing. Uh, one is because the specific reasons requirement was delayed to July 1. Some people thought that it was all delayed to July 1 and didn't come into compliance with 95% of it back on February 1st. So they've got February 1 to July 1 out of compliance. Though every rollover recommendation, every IRA transfer recommendation, not in compliance is a prohibited transaction. Prohibited, literally. Um, so that's one example. Another example is I, I've actually had one call where somebody realized that it applied to retirement plan rollers, but didn't realize that it applied to recommendations to transfer IRAs. So they're out of compliance on the IRA thing. Uh, prohibited transactions across the board, every transfer recommendation. The third one is where, and this is even worse, This is I've lately been talking to some advisors around the country with small advisory firms but who don't do much, if any, retirement plan work. They don't even know this rule exists. They don't follow the Department of Labor. They don't read publications that, that DOL guidance has written up in. They had no idea that it even existed. So they're out of compliance since February 1 on everything. Uh, and I think in that particular area, that the DOL is going to have to do something to deal with massive noncompliance. I mean, I, I just think it's far, far larger than anybody thinks or, or realizes the, the, the volume of noncompliance. And I think it's mainly with that group of people who don't follow the Department of Labor guidance because they don't think they need to because they're not retirement plan advisors. And so anyway, so there. Now, once you find out you're out of compliance, um, then there's a process. It's called a self-correction process actually built into PTE 2020-02, as I taught you to, to say it. Um, <laughs> The, uh, uh, and it, literally, it's a four-step process right in the PTE. The first, obviously, is to uh, identify them and determine if there are any, if there are any uh, losses, uh, then fix any losses and correct the failure, then report yourself to the Department of Labor, the correction uh, and, and what you did to the Department of Labor. Uh, I mean, literally, there is an email address to send it to right on the PTE, uh, and, and forward that to the person at your firm who has to do the annual retrospective review after the end of the year. That's typically the CCO. 
and then that person has to include it in the uh, in the annual retrospective review. So you got to find it, you got to fix it, you got to uh, report yourself to the Department of Labor, and you have to include it in your annual retrospective review. What if you don't? What if you don't do that? Well, then it is a prohibited transaction. Uh, it's subject to uh, the Department of, or it's subject to the Department of Labor. Uh, finding that you finding you and that you have to correct it and imposing penalties. They then refer it to the IRS. There's a failure to file the Form 5330 with the IRS or penalties for that. And there's a failure to pay the excise tax on prohibited transactions. There's a penalty for that. This is a prohibited transaction that continues every year because the prohibited transaction is the money you make from the rollover IRA and that continues every year. So this could, in theory, go on into perpetuity, uh, or at least until somebody passes away and the IRA goes to their to their family. Um, so that's that's the four step process now. Now, interesting, the Department of Labor says if you do that, it's not a prohibited transaction, even though you failed to satisfy some of the requirement requirements. You fixed it well enough that they will not label it a prohibited transaction. Therefore, you don't owe excise taxes, you don't owe penalty taxes, you don't owe damages other than what it took to fix it. And um, that's that's a mouthful in a way. I mean, I'm encouraging my clients to follow that. I've got some clients that are putting together their filings with the DOL right now on that. And some of them are easy. A failure to give the fiduciary acknowledgement. That's one of the disclosure requirements. Um, accidentally, but it was a systems error. So it repeated itself over multiple rollovers. Uh, the fix there, I think, the DOL has not told us. I don't think there are any losses. And I think the fix is just give the fiduciary acknowledgement. Go back and fix well, it, report yourself to the DOL. Okay, now, but talk a little bit about that investment losses thing, because that was another point that you made in your blog post, the, the notion, you know, what do we mean by investment losses? I mean, if you think about it, if if uh, if I made a recommendation or whatever, and I, I simply forgot to, to acknowledge my status as a fiduciary, how am I measuring losses? Is it like from the from the point of the transaction? Is it relative to some market benchmark? I mean, what is investment losses? You know, it's it, as you pointed out, and as I said in my article, it's it's not defined. They don't define investment losses. I mean, if you just let your mind run, the, most, you know, the first thing you think of is, oh, well, the market went down or the investment went down, they lost money. But what if next week it goes back up to where it was? Then they, then they didn't lose money. Uh, but wouldn't the plan, the money in the 401k account, have gone down if the market went down too? So where's the investment loss? Uh, in other words, I, I don't think you can apply that in its ordinary meaning. I, I would think there would have to be something pretty serious goes on. An investment completely collapses. Uh, I mean, think of an investment going to zero or uh, or, or to very little. Uh, the kind of investment that could go bump in the dark because it's not publicly traded or, you know, and it's not uh, transparent and it's not easy to value. Uh, so I don't think, although we have to admit, it's not defined. And I'm going to, I'm talking to or communicating with the Department of Labor saying, you need to define this because people don't know how to apply it. And if they don't know how to apply it, it's going to be a barrier to them filing with you. Uh, yeah. But I don't think it would apply to the ordinary market fluctuations. Not because I know anything that other people don't know, but just because it doesn't make any sense that it would apply to ordinary market fluctuations. Well, unless, unless there was some sort of sense that you wanted to say, 
I'm going to, because there was this transgression, I want to put you back to where you were, in which case an ultra, I would argue, an ultra conservative read on that might be to, to sort of bring them back to where their balance was at the point of the transfer. I'm, I'm sure there won't be a lot yeah. of people excited about the possibility of doing that. But um, I actually, yeah, yeah, no, I actually have a case. I mean, one case where that I'm working on helping somebody on, uh, they put them into a load fund, 5% front end load fund, and they could have put them into a less expensive fund. Wow. So restoring that 5% would be, we don't know for sure, but I would recommend that that be done because there was a lower cost share class they could have gone into. Yeah. And there's a lot of sensitivity around that these days. So, yeah, I think that I think that's that makes some sense. Well, so kind of what you're what you're lining out here is there there's there's a way to go at this. And there's really some advantages to going down this path and complying with the four steps so that you do end up getting treated as a failure rather than the prohibited transaction. Because, as you said, that that thing's got some legs and, and a lot of other prickly parts that uh, that go with it. But um, but high level, there's a pretty clean roadmap, it sounds like, for, you know, a, knowing you did something wrong or didn't do something right and and putting it right so you can get on with life. Yeah, I think um, people may not realize how significant the annual retrospective review is, but at the beginning January not one of next year, they have to, the, the CCO or other executive at the firm has to do a, a re, an annual retrospective review. I think of it as an audit of yourself. They have to do an audit their own advisor's activities uh, at, you know, a, a, in a statistically valid way so they get a sense of what really is going on. And if they find violations, they have to write them up and then they have to correct them then. Believe me, it's going to be harder to correct them nine months from now than it is to correct them today. Things don't always, but they generally tend to get worse rather than better. So once you start going downhill, it's hard to go back uphill. We're not, we're not talking about fine wine, you're saying. It won't improve with age? No, it won't. It won't. It might be more like the grapes, um, uh, which definitely will go bad with age. But no, it, just, it does get worse. And I think there's a, a lot of reasons to find them and correct them now. My sense from the Department of Labor is that if you're generally in compliance, you have the policies and procedures, you're generally making the disclosures, and you just mess up on one case or a handful of cases or more, but everything else is in place, the compliance structure is in place, and then you find it and fix it, my sense is they're not going to follow up on that at all. Matter of fact, they might view that as a good citizen rather than as a bad citizen. Well... Let's hope so. Certainly, based on the sense you've had out there of the volume of these that might might be out there, it seems like we got a little little cleanup on aisle four potentially. <laughs> oh, God, <So>. we do. <laughs> I'm really worried about it. Well, all right. Well, hey, speaking of cleaning up, um, we also had an interesting announcement come out. Um, well, it's just been a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now. Um, no. The IRS of all people. You know, uh, extended. You know, I don't know an olive branch. It's kind of a kind of an interesting thing. What's 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 the uh, something they call a pre-examination compliance pilot? How's that for uh, just rolling off your tongue? <laughs> that sounds like government talk to me. Um, 
But yeah, basically the the IRS, when they're thinking about auditing a retirement plan, they're sending out a 90-day notice that says, we're going to give you 90 days if you want to take advantage of it. We're going to give you 90 days to audit your own plan and to fix any mistakes and then report them to us. If you don't get back to us within 90 days, we're going to audit your plan. Now, you know, first blush, you might say, well, as between me auditing my plan and the government auditing it, I'll just let them audit. Why should I put in the extra work? Um, it's because if you find and fix mistakes, they'll accept that. I mean, there, there are some rules around that. I'm not saying they would accept everything. But generally speaking, if you find and fix the mistake, they will accept that and will not propose to disqualify your plan. They won't assess sanctions. <clears throat> uh, it's just... It's a good way to do it. I mean, sometimes it feels a little odd. Like if you're a small plan, you might just go to your third-party administrator who did most of the compliance work to begin with to audit your plan. Um, and I think there ought to be, I mean, you know, so that, they're going to be looking at what they've already looked at, except there are a handful of areas that, that the IRS finds problems. So you could have like a limited audit. What are some of those areas? Well, I think if the TPA had a checklist, or for a bigger plan, it might be a consulting firm or a law firm, but they could have a checklist and say, look, we're, we're not going to spend the rest of our natural lives auditing your plan and run up a kajillion dollar bill. But here's the six areas where the IRS commonly finds problems. We're going to pre-audit you on those six areas. What are those? Uh, participant loans is one area. Using the incorrect, calcul uh, the, uh, incorrect definition of compensation. Very, very common area. Failure mm -hmm. to follow the terms of the plan document. Another common area. Uh, those are uh, failure to make, particularly for missing participants, required minimum distributions. Think about that one. Uh, but I think there are anywhere from five to ten areas where a TPA, a lawyer, a consultant could legitimately say to a plan sponsor, look, it's too expensive to audit everything. But if we have checklists here. We can cost efficiently audit this for you and help you fix any mistakes that we find. Uh, and, and I think that makes sense because it minimizes your risk during the audit and, and the risk of penalties. And it, from the sound of it in the IRS communication about this, it, it sounds like you could sort of spare yourself the full-blown audit by basically coming clean on some of that other stuff. And it, was, it, it seemed like if they felt like you had, had basically done a good job of that and had, had uh, ac accurately made all the corrections, things like that, that uh, they, they could just kind of close things out or conduct choose to conduct a limited audit. Or I guess also they could see, say, well, based on all that you guys have turned in here, we better go <laughs> at a full-blown audit. But, but at least it, it seemed to, to lay out the possibility that says, hey, we're considering your plan for an audit, so if you'd like to go ahead in the next 90 days and kind of just clean up a little bit and make the corrections that we're going to end up coming across anyway, you'll save us both a lot of time and potentially money um, and ultimately yeah. do do the right things by the plan. So, Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I think, you know, these guys audit a lot of plans, the, the folks that work at the IRS you know, they develop a sense of things. If you come in and really lay out the corrections, you present the issues, say, here's how we corrected them. Here's you're coming in with a lot of credibility. They're, they're, they're going to be inclined to think you've done a good job if it looks thorough and accurate. Uh, they may want to double check a little bit of what you did, but there's not a whole lot of incentive 
for them to then spend more time on what appears to be a compliant plan sponsor. It's just just not there. So I agree. I, I, I think you're, you've got a good chance of reducing the scope and the time of the audit, even though there's some expense involved in the pre-audit. Yeah, that's a By good the way, I, I, think that, I think this is a great strategy from the IRS's perspective because they, they offer the plan sponsor certain benefits for saving the IRS time because the yeah. IRS agents then won't have to do as much work and they can go on and audit somebody else because they found you to be a compliant plan sponsor. So it's good from their perspective, but I also like how it helps plan sponsors. Uh, the one thing, if anybody is listening to our podcasts that actually does, will help plan sponsors with these pre-audits, be extremely careful about what you say the scope of what you're going to do is. Don't say, I'm going to audit your plan. I'm going to pre-audit your plan because you can't find everything. You just can't. Don't make that promise. Just say, here's what I'll do and define that well, because it could be there's something you didn't see and that wasn't a typical error that you would have ordinarily picked up on. We had one more thing we wanted to talk about today, and it's a little bit of a shift in gears. And it was something that uh, you picked up on an article that was on NapaNet. It was a, an article covering a report uh, from the folks at Morningstar called Right on Target. Plan sponsors may not always consider participants' behavior or needs when selecting target date glide pass. I got to tell you. I got I got no love for for titles that are the first paragraph of an article, but <laughs> but at least you know what you're reading or getting ready to read when you read the title, huh? Um, yeah. So what what caught your eye about this one, Fred? Well, I, first off, I think maybe they ought to rename that as title and executive summary. <laughs> um, so yeah. The, the, uh, uh, you know the first thought that struck me as I read it was, gee, this looks a lot like the tips that the DOL gave out years, several years ago on how to select target aid funds, that, that there was just a lot of commonality between what Morningstar was saying and what the DOL had said. And basically, I think the process, I mean, my view of the right process for selecting a target aid fund is first you look at the demographics of the workforce and maybe a few other factors affecting the demographics. Uh, by that, I mean, is there also a defined benefit or cash balance plan there? Uh, but the factors that could affect the asset allocation of a targeted fund, because viewed as a lawyer, to me, the most critical aspect of targeted funds are the asset allocation and the glide path, not the underlying investments. Uh, I mean, they're not, I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just saying they're, for targeted yeah. funds are secondary. And matching up the asset allocation and glide path with the workforce. Um, and, you know, for example, a law firm, uh, maybe there's a cash balance plan, which would be, could be treated as a really big bond, you know, your interest in it, mm -hmm. fixed income. Uh, and then you have the, the, four, the, the 401k plan and maybe that would suggest, well, gee, we can make the 401k uh, target a fund more aggressively designed because we've got this big bond in the cash balance plan. Uh, the also lawyers have more flexibility usually over determining a retirement date and they make good income. So they've got some flexibility in 
in market fluctuations, you know, up and downs of the market, which shouldn't affect them as much. So that's an analysis. How I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying that's the approach I would take for a law firm. What about but a, we know? A, but we know all the lawyers want self-directed brokerage accounts anyway. So oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> we promised we promised we weren't going to cover crypto anymore. Um, so, <laughs> so, and yet we yeah. always manage to creep it in. Um, we do. But you know the thing is, when you talk about a, a relatively, I mean, you're talking about a law firm. So let's imagine for a minute. It's a you know it's a, it's a relatively small organization, and and maybe demographically relatively homogenous. Um, but what about you know these massive employers? You know, with fifty thousand workers and and demographics all over the board, how are they supposed to match that demographic base to a I'll, I'll say it, one-size-fits-all target date fund. I would, a couple of thoughts on that. I think it depends a little bit on the industry. Uh, for example, in the real estate industry, uh, and, and again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying the thoughts that come to mind. One thought that comes to mind is when the real estate industry goes south, it really goes south, uh, more or less. And so you would want a less volatile target date suite there, perhaps, or that would be one reason that would tilt you in that direction, there may be others going the other way. A lot of them don't have defined benefit plans, so there's not that security. But anyway, that's the analysis you would walk through. Now let's talk about a big company that isn't quite so susceptible, uh, isn't in quite such a volatile sector of the economy. Um, and there, I think, I think it's justifiable to look at the population that's defaulted into the target aid fund as a QDIA. More and put more emphasis on that than on than on the demographics, the varied demographics of the whole company. Uh, there, it might be lower paid, less educated, less experienced with investments, which might suggest a more conservative design. Perhaps not so much in the early years, but as you get closer to retirement, because it's just a group of people that may not have the knowledge to be able to deal with market fluctuations without getting afraid and possibly even selling. But but isn't the real point, I think, that, that you're making here, and the, and the point that I think that the Morgastar analysis was making as well, is that, you know, plan fiduciaries, you need to remember, go, go back, pay attention to what the Labor Department told you when you're getting ready to sort of pick these defaults kind of thing, is you need to be taken into account the people that are going to be taking advantage of it. You need, that's, that's a part of your prudent, process is to to look at and consider that as a part of what you're doing here. And I think your point about looking at who's actually being defaulted into the target date fund is a, is a good one. Um, because again, those are the people that, that are actually affected by it. And those are the demographics that, that you ought to take advantage of. Um, I mean, so that makes sense to me. Of course, I, I now, agree with that. You know, the other point that, that the Morningstar piece made and that you and I have talked a little bit about is you know we seem to have come at a point in the in the product cycles um, development where you know there used to be two retirement managed glide paths and through retirement managed glide paths and these days and, and granted most of the assets for all of these target date funds are in the handful depending on how you want to do your math either three or, or four uh, providers they're all kind of like all there bunched together kind of thing and. And the idea is that um, these have all pretty much morphed to through retirement. 
um, for lots of good reasons. And, you know, we can talk about what those are. You know, the, the idea is that, that participants are leaving their balances behind in the plan, that when you're, you know, when you get to what used to be considered retirement age, you still got a 20-year investment horizon going by you and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but again, I, I, one of the things that's always, I don't know, concern's too strong a word, but, but uh, that I've, I've worried about a little bit is that I think when we pitched target date funds to people and told them what they were, I think we presented a, a case that said, this is going to be on a glide path and it's going to basically take you from a more aggressive portfolio down to a more conservative portfolio, you know, as you approach the retirement age with the subtext being that at that point in time, you'll you'll take your money and you'll do something else, that you will leave the plan. Now, arguably, again, some of those dynamics have changed over time and probably, hopefully, some of the conversations in education about our target date funds and their utility have changed as well. But I know that when I read people in the mainstream uh, media write about target date funds, they still seem to think very much that we're dealing with things that are going to take you down to a relatively conservative investment position at age 65 or thereabouts with the sort of implicit understanding that at that point in time, you're going to make a different investment decision. And, um, and if they've got it wrong, I suspect there are participants out there who may, who may not have that current understanding either. What do you think? No, I agree. Uh, I think, again, going back to the process that an advisor should use with a committee that I think they should use and that the committee should use in evaluating this, um, it seems to me that you look at the, again, you look at demographic data, you look at the data, are participants leaving their money in the plan or are they not when they retire, when they hit age 65 or 67? If the data shows they're rolling the money out, of the, then you then the next obvious question is, well, why do we have a through retirement suite of target date funds? I mean, what sense does it make to have through retirement if the participants don't stay there through retirement? And so that's the question. There can be an answer. I don't think I don't think it's that situation where there is no answer and you just obviously have to switch to to retirement suite. But for example, um, if the committee said, you know, uh, again, we're a law firm or we're, uh, we're, we're, we're we have a lot of highly paid uh, college educated employees, um, you know, they, they've got some flexibility, uh, they understand investments, then the, the, the plan committee could say, well, we're going to we're going to use a through retirement, not because it goes through retirement, but because those last 10 years of the glide path to retirement are more aggressive, more aggressively invested. But if everybody, even if it's a lower paid or middle class workforce, why are you taking them in aggressively into retirement age? Shouldn't you be in moderate or even conservative? And and when I, I literally mean the last 10 years. So right now, I guess it'd be what the glide path looks like between 2025 and 2035. That would be where I would really be looking to see, is this appropriate? You know, for people who hit 65 in 2025 through 2035, is this appropriate for our workforce? Uh, my concern, Nevin, is I don't think people are doing it. I, I have read so many sets of plan committee minutes. I have never to this day seen a discussion of committee minutes of the asset allocation of the target date fund, particularly during that last 10-year period, which I think is a mistake. I 
that's a great point, and and I'm with you. I think I think I think Target Day funds are a great innovation. I think they've helped, you know, tens of millions of of workers um, have good, solid, diversified investment decisions, much better than they could have done on their own, particularly during volatile market environments and things like that. But um, but we may have forgotten some of the lessons of 2008, 2009. We may have gotten complacent. I don't think we should. Um, as planned fiduciaries, we're not allowed that luxury, are we? No, we're not. And I, too, am a great fan of Target A funds. I don't think anything... We're, we're, we're talking about how to do a better thing with a good thing right now. <laughs> I mean, we're, neither one of us is being negative about it. I am invested almost entirely in Target A funds with... I have a cash balance fund, so I set the retirement date 10, day, 10 years forward from where I would otherwise be to take into account that conservative aspect of my investments. But yeah, I like them. I don't want to have to do that myself. I mean, I, I, I don't, how much should be allocated to whatever, foreign equities? I have no idea in the world. Well, but they that, do it for that, me. That in and of itself, Fred, makes you, in my experience, a rare lawyer indeed. Most of them think they, they know what they're doing. We used to uh, We used to make jokes about how we needed to build an index that would short all of the investment decisions that the lawyer clients of ours made. So um, I knew you were a rare commodity, and now I know you're even <laughs> more rare than I thought. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Well, hey, I think on that note, um, we'll close things off. And uh, again, Fred, it's been another great conversation. Thanks for being part of it. Everybody who's listening, thank you. Uh, thanks for all your support, your sharing, your likes. Um, spread the word. Tell your friends. Um, if you got something you want to want us to talk about, we've got a mechanism for that on the nevinandfred.com website. So please go ahead and take advantage of that. Have a great day, everybody. Hey, Nevin. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.